Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Matthew. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Matthew. Last week, we started chapter 3, and we met John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. It's interesting, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. Uh, Maybe today, maybe next week, we'll get Jesus out in the wilderness. There's something about the wilderness. More about that next week. John the Baptist was preaching and he was baptizing. He was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is coming. We had a brief discussion about the kingdom last week. It was brief because really we're going to spend the book of Matthew talking about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is presenting Christ as the Messiah, the king that fulfills the promises that were given to David. As a king, you need a kingdom. And Christ is coming to establish the kingdom of heaven. And John was the person who was sent to prepare the way. He was preaching repent, and he was baptizing to symbolize that the people had in fact repented. We also met some other groups of people last week. We saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees sitting on the periphery, watching John the Baptist, wondering what he was up to, wondering if he was a threat. We're going to have a lot of discussion about Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious leaders who were, if you will, in cahoots with the Romans. They had compromised their religious beliefs in order to establish contact with the Romans. The high priest was a Sadducee. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a holiness movement. They believed in the law. You ought to keep the law. And if you don't keep it, I'm going to beat you over the head with it. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, is going to come in contact with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and we will see that repeatedly. Trust me, Sadducees and Pharisees are alive and well in the world today. We just don't call them Sadducees and Pharisees. There are those who have compromised their religious beliefs in order to fit in to whatever society says works. And there are those who want to take the law, their rules, their regulations, and beat you over the head with them. Both are alive and well. So, John attacked the Sadducees and Pharisees. Basically, he just started with, okay, you brood of vipers. What, who, who told you to flee from the wrath that is coming? And so we ended last week with a discussion of the kingdom coming and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And the answer is yes. For those who repent, for those who will follow Christ, it is a magnificent thing. For those who refuse to follow Christ... It is the wrath of God being poured on them. And that's where we ended last week's lesson. But we introduced ourselves to a concept of baptism. John is baptizing the people as a sign of their repentance. But he says, he says, I baptize you with water. There is someone coming after me who is going to baptize you with the Spirit 
and is going to baptize with fire. So we're going to spend some time today talking about the ordinance or the sacrament of baptism. Our church believes that there are two ordinances or sacraments. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church, big picture church, has been divided about what these sacraments mean since probably the early church. So we're going to talk just briefly about the sacrament or ordinance of baptism. And first, I want to talk about the word sacrament and ordinance. Our doctrinal statement of our church uses those two words interchangeably. That's really not the case. They do have separate meanings, but it makes sense because that's what people are used to referring to them as. Technically, a sacrament is a means of grace. By participating in that activity, you are receiving grace. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Anybody want to try to name all of them? I can get about halfway through it. We, coming out of the Reformation, got rid of five of those and only adopted two, which were baptism and the Lord's Supper. What does baptism do for you? Why do you need to get baptized? Well, if you're a good Roman Catholic, when you were an infant, they took you and they sprinkled water on you and they baptized you. They told the parents to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They assigned godparents to see to it that the parents did it. What did that do in the eyes of a Catholic? Well, what it did is it removed original sin. Remember when we talked through the book of, of Romans? We discussed this idea that we inherited a sin nature from Adam. Because he sinned, we were in Adam, and we sinned, we are born sinners. Well, to a Catholic, when you are sprinkled, that taint of original sin is removed from you. And at that point, if you don't mess up, you're probably, maybe, on the path to salvation. That's what allows you to receive the grace of the sacraments in order to grow in your maturity, and at the end, you become saved. That's why if you ask a good Catholic, are you saved, what will they say? I hope so. Because salvation is not something that you obtain and then work out through sanctification. It's something that you work out through sanctification, and then you are justified because you are, in fact, saved. Now, we sometimes characterize that, that they believe in salvation by works and we believe in salvation by grace, which isn't entirely true because they know of the necessity of grace. That's why they have the sacraments, to receive grace. They know they have to have grace. But the sanctification process is begun with baptism that removes the taint of original sin, and it works its way out, and you are justified when you die if you haven't fallen into mortal sin. 
mortal sin are those sins that return you to the state that you were before you were baptized of having that taint of sin in you. And there are a handful of mortal sins, and then there's a boatload of what? Venial sins, which are the sins that you and I do every day. Mortal sin is like murder, apostasy, things of that nature. Go ahead. Uh, mortal sins and venial, B-E-N-I-A-L, something like that. That's the distinction. It is interesting historically how that came about. Okay, We know, we think we know, we think we know that there are sins that are worse than other sins, right? And the problem is, is they had all of these people doing all this stuff after they had been baptized and removed the taint of original sin, what do you do with them all? I mean, if they were perfect after that, you would understand it. But they weren't, because they were just like us. And so you had to make some distinction between mortal and venial sins. So that is the Roman Catholic position. Now, if you were in the Reformed tradition, you believed that Baptism is a sacrament, that is, that it is a means of grace. You receive grace because you participate in it. And it is viewed as kind of a replacement for the Jewish covenant sign of circumcision. That's why they practice infant baptism. You bring the infant, you sprinkle in it, they receive grace because of the baptism itself. But they will say that's not necessarily saving the child. I mean, the scripture is very clear that in the Jewish community, there were those who were circumcised and it didn't work. Okay, But it did show that they were part of the covenant and that was a good thing that opened them up to grace, even though they might not accept it. Uh, About 30 years ago, we moved to Virginia for two years. My company sent me there. And I drove the car up with, to meet the moving van and all that stuff. And my wife, bless her heart, flew up with two small children. And uh, a lady on the airplane actually changed seats with the man sitting on the row with my wife to help take care of the children. And she told us, you need to go to this church in Reston, Virginia, where we, we were moving. It wasn't even her church. But she said, there's lots of young families and you need to go. Well, it was a... PCA, Reformed Presbyterian Church, and we went there for two years. And it was a very nice experience, but they did practice infant baptism. Now, in my mind, I just kind of said, okay, that's, you know, baby dedication. But it's not really baby dedication. That's why when we moved back here, we did not go to a Reformed Presbyterian Church. They believe that you receive grace when you are baptized Not necessarily enough to save you, but it shows that you're in the covenant, and you do that to infants to show that they're part of the family. That is their version. Now, uh, I have my Church of Christ friend. I've told you about him before. (sighs) The Church of Christ believes that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. You go to the book of Acts and it says, you know, repent, believe, be baptized, and you will be saved. 
Now, in order to do that, they have to actually repudiate the idea of salvation by grace alone. They say that's a heresy. They acknowledge the necessity of grace. You have to have grace. But if you are not going to do that step of baptism, you will not be saved at the end of the day. So what do we believe? I was raised a good Southern Baptist. Okay? This church is about as close to being a Southern Baptist as you can get and not be Southern Baptist. I never said that. We're not a Southern Baptist church. Don't repeat that. The Baptist tradition teaches that baptism is an ordinance. It isn't necessarily a sacrament. As I said, we tend to use the words interchangeably. It is an observance. It is a sign. It is a picture of something that has already happened. It does not save you. It is an outward sign of an inward change in you as a person. You have been saved through grace alone, and out of obedience you are then baptized to demonstrate, to show what has happened in your heart. And that is an ordinance, a picture of what has already occurred. As a Baptist, we also believe in... Wait, we're not Baptists, right? Oh. We believe in believers' baptism. What does that mean? It means that we don't baptize infants. Why? Because we believe since baptism is a sign, a picture, an outward picture of an inward change, there has to be an inward change. You have to be saved in order to be baptized, and an infant can't do that. Now, all clear as mud, right? The church has divided on this throughout history. John the Baptist is baptizing with water to demonstrate repentance. He says Christ is coming and he will baptize you with the Spirit. He will change you. This is not water baptism. This is salvation that John is talking about Jesus bringing into the world. The water baptism remains, but only as a sign, a picture of the inward baptism by the Holy Spirit. John talks about a third baptism. Jesus is coming to baptize you with the Spirit and baptize you with fire. There's two possible answers to this baptism by fire. One is the day of Pentecost. You remember the Spirit descended upon them in the form of tongues of fire. And they had the charismatic gifts. They went out and preached in a variety of different languages. That is the baptism by fire. And people will adopt that idea 
if they want to separate the baptism that saves you or the baptism that precedes the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The other option is that he is talking about coming judgment. Throughout the scripture, fire is used as a purifying symbol. It is going to separate the wheat from the tares. It is going to separate the gold from all the other junk that's in the gold. And remember at the end of last week's lesson, John the Baptist said, we are separating the wheat and the chaff. The wheat we're going to bundle up and the chaff is going to get burned. Baptized with spirit, baptized with fire. Now, that's the introduction. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Okay. Everything we've just said about baptism, everything, whether you're a Catholic, a Church of Christ, Reformed, Baptist, or a Bible church, all of it is predicated on the idea that you are a sinner. And whether the baptism is actually taking away the taint of original sin, or it is the ordinance that actually saves you, or whether it is a sign of an inward conversion... All of it is predicated on the idea that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ shows up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching repentance. He's demonstrating the reality of that through baptism. And Jesus shows up and says, Me, I want to be baptized. And John the Baptist looks around and says, Are you nuts? Worst case scenario, you need to baptize me. Now, it is an interesting discussion, and we'll speculate for just about this much, but not much more. How much did John the Baptist know about who Jesus was at that instant in time? Now, in about four verses... The Spirit is going to descend on Jesus. A voice from heaven is going to say, this is my beloved Son, and we're going to have a pretty good indication. But at this point, how much does John the Baptist know about who Jesus is? We know, because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, we know that the infant, no, pre-infant, John the Baptist, while he was in the womb leapt when Mary showed up with Jesus in the womb. There was some spiritual insight that John the Baptist had regarding who Jesus is. But I would venture to say it was a little fuzzy. That's just my speculation. They grew up together. Maybe they were cousins. Maybe they had interaction. How would you like to be Jesus' cousin? Why can't you clean up after yourself like Jesus does? 
Stop whining. You ever hear Jesus whine? Don't be such a brat. Be like Jesus. No wonder he went to the wilderness. He had to get away from Jesus. I didn't say that. She said that. Yes. We're going to have a great lesson on that <laughs> next year. <laughs> His question is, didn't G, uh, John the Baptist have doubts when he went to prison about who Jesus was? And there are two answers to that question. One is yes and one is no. <laughs> I go with no. But we'll discuss that at length next year. I believe... John the Baptist had information from his being around Jesus. He had spiritual insight. I think he knew. We actually see in the other Gospels where he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John knew. John knew, I believe, Because the Holy Spirit had told him. He had told him. John was so in tune with what God was doing. He was preparing the way. And when Jesus showed up, he goes, there. That's the one. Baptism is predicated on a need for salvation. Jesus shows up, he stands in line, he gets to the front of the line, and John looks at him and he says, no, no, not going to happen. I need to be baptized by you. Why are you showing up to be baptized by me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Huh. We need to do this so that righteousness will be fulfilled. What does that mean? What is righteousness? We'll have lots of discussions in the weeks to come about what righteousness is. Basically, righteousness is right standing before God. But wait a minute. There actually is no Old Testament rule and regulation that you're supposed to go out to the Jordan River and get dunked. There really wasn't. There was no ordinance of baptism. There were cleaning rituals. There was something that was for new converts to Judaism. But Jesus was a good Jew. Why would he need it? Why would he say, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness? And here we get into a fabulous discussion about who Jesus is. Not was, is. I remember uh, reading a sermon years, years, years ago by uh, the head pastor of a large Methodist church in town. And the title of the sermon was, Who Was Jesus? Not is, was. Jesus is the Son of God coming to earth to be the sacrifice To pay the penalty for our sin. 
And in order to do that, He needs to be us. He needs to relate to us. He needs to demonstrate that He is just like us, except without sin. Hmm. Jesus is... You ready for this? You can write this down. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Throughout the early part of the church, there were huge, 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 major, let's divide the Roman Empire arguments about the nature of Christ and his relationship to God. And we're going to talk about his relationship to God in about five minutes. But for now, we have to talk about who Jesus was, is, and will be. He was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God and, you know, let's take some parts of God and cram it into a human form that's somewhat human. And the early church had people who just couldn't accept this. There are two great possible answers. He is God who just happens to look like a human. The old speculation. He's walking down the beach at the Sea of Galilee and you look behind and there are no footprints. Why are there no footprints? Because he's not really human. That is the Gnostic view. He is just some ethereal human form looking thing, but he's really God. Or the flip side, he is a human being that is so inspired by God that we talk about him being God, but he's really just a really good human being. Both of those have been believed and are believed in the world today. But it is not what the scripture teaches. He has all the attributes of God. Wait a minute. That doesn't work out. There is that time, remember, where he says, I don't know something? Well, how can he have all knowledge that God has and say he doesn't know something? The image that I like to use, and it is just a picture that I have in my head, is that he had all the attributes of God But because of his submission to the Father, remember he says, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. Because of his submission to the Father, he took those and he put them on the shelf. He still has them. And to me, some of the most fascinating events in the life of Jesus are when he takes one of those off the shelf and he demonstrates them. Some of them are kind of trivial. You know, the disciples coming and he goes, I saw you when you were over there sitting under the tree. Well, maybe it's a parlor trick. Maybe somebody cheated and told him. I don't know. But he has a full day preaching and he gets tired and he gets in the boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. A storm blows up and everybody is scared for their life and he's asleep and they wake him up. And what does he do? (sighs) <sighs> storm, stop. And guess what? 
it did. These were people who were used to storms on the, ocean, on, the, on the sea. They were not used to somebody saying, stop, and it stopped. Yes, go ahead. One thing I've pondered before is that, you know, he grew up as a child. Mm-hmm. There's a fascinating verse in the book of Hebrews that says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Huh. He was going to relate to us as a human being. Everything we experienced, he experienced, with the exception of sin. Now, hmm? He made straight A's. Now we're going to see, I guess in next week's lesson, he's going to be tempted, just like we are tempted. I will argue, and I'll do this next week, that he was tempted more than we were tempted. Why? Because you and I start getting tempted. Okay? And I'm tempted more, and I'm tempted more. And we think, I can't take it anymore. And I give in. I give in to temptation. How much would you have been tempted had you not given in? If you actually went to that edge every single time, that's what Jesus did. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but in order to relate to us as human beings, he told John the Baptist, I need to be baptized to demonstrate to the people that I am just like them, yet without sin. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The first question we have is, how many people were aware of what was going on At this point in time. And we are not told. Okay. We do know that there were conversions in the Bible. Conversions. You remember? Sinners becoming saved. Saul, Paul, was whacked off of his donkey. The voice of God said, what are you doing? And there's some indication the people around him were just going, huh? What's going on? They were unaware that God was speaking to Saul become Paul. We're not really told how many people were aware of what was going on right here. I suspect that John knew what was going on. I suspect that there were people who understood the significance of this situation. But this is being done to demonstrate 
a radical truth about God. My good Catholic friend has said on occasion, he doesn't understand why, you know, unbelievers want to challenge you about certain doctrine. You know, what about salvation? What about this? He said, if they really wanted to get on us, they would talk about the Trinity. Because it is one of the hardest Christian doctrines to actually explain. I can tell it to you, and I'm going to tell it to you. I can tell you why I believe the Scripture teaches it. But what's interesting is this is going to unfold throughout the book of Matthew and is ultimately going to be why the Jewish leaders conspire to crucify Jesus. Because Jesus didn't claim to be just a good guy, a good teacher, someone who was so inspired by God that he looked almost like God. Jesus is going to say, before Abraham was, I am. And a good Jewish audience would have known when Moses was at the burning bush and Moses said, who are you? Who should I tell the people that you are? And God says, tell them, I am. The Jewish people would have known that Jesus was claiming to be God. What we see in this verse are the three persons of the Trinity present at one point in time. Now, everything I just said can get you in deep trouble because they're always present at one point in time. They're always there. But in our minds, that's what we see right here. We're going to see it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus takes a couple of his disciples and Moses and everybody shows up, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit. But there is only one God. The formula that we use is that God is a single being with three persons. And at this point, I can start listing off heresies that we can fall into because our minds have difficulty with this. If you're a good Muslim, you believe that Christians believe in three gods. We are not monotheistic. We believe in three separate gods. If you're a good Jew, you don't have a clue what Jesus and this Holy Spirit thing are. And if you're a good Mormon... You believe God the Father is a human, a, was a human being. God the Son was a human being. And his brother, Lucifer. And the Holy Ghost, well, that's just kind of some nebulous, may the force be with you. Okay? What can I say? We believe that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ submitted his will to the will of God the Father. 
throughout his ministry. Why would he do that? It is interesting when you talk about really nasty verses in the Bible. Okay? Wives, submit to your husbands. And we as human beings go, oh, that shows that women are inferior to men. Hogwash. Because Jesus submitted to God the Father, not because he was inferior, but he chose to do it, to do the will of the Father, to provide salvation for us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. Remember our discussion in the life of David. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit descended on particular individuals at particular points in time to accomplish particular missions. When Saul was anointed king, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. When he rebelled and did those things that he was told not to do, the Spirit left him. When David was anointed king, the Spirit of God descended upon him. The Spirit would come and go. We see after the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit descends upon all believers. That's why we do not believe there is a second baptism where you are saved at some point in time and at some later point in time the Holy Spirit descends upon you normally demonstrated by speaking in tongues. We do not believe that. We believe that when you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit who empowers you to become what God would have you to become. Here we see God the Father blessing God the Son. We have the Holy Spirit descending upon God the Son to empower him for his ministry. Why did he need him? Jesus was just like us without sin. Well, it's easy. It's easy to not sin if you're God, right? piece of cake. But you know what? Jesus had the same spirit that we as believers have. Hmm. We'll have an interesting discussion next week about whether Jesus could in fact sin. That's next week's lesson though. What is the point of today's lesson? Two things. Three things. I don't know how many things. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I've told you before in here, I was teaching a class across the way and casually mentioned, casually mentioned that Jesus was the Son of God. I had two people come up the next week and ask me, wait a minute, did you say that Jesus was God? And I said, yes. I would like all of us, I would like to think that all of us understand that. But there are a majority of believers, no, there are a majority of people in churches today who believe Jesus Christ was just a really good man, a really good teacher who taught us how to live our lives, and by golly, we ought to do that. 
You know what? He was a really good man. He taught really good stuff, and we ought to do what he said. But he was also God. That's why he could be sinless and the perfect sacrifice. He can be both the priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Lesson number one, Jesus is God. Number two, the reality of the Trinity. It is difficult to explain because we all all want to adopt certain pictures and the pictures end up just confusing us. You know, me, I'm a father, I'm a husband, and I'm a friend. See, that's three things. Well, not really. Or there's this idea that at one point in time, God was God the Father, and at another point in time, He was God the Son, and at another point in time, He is... No, it's called modalism. No, all three show up right here simultaneously, not in a sequence. They're all there. Why is that important? It's important to help us understand the Scripture to start with. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our own image. Who was God talking to? He was talking to the Trinity. Who did the creation? John chapter 1. Jesus. They're all there all the time. Just sometimes we have trouble seeing them. And then the reality of baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Personally, I have, I try to be very gracious toward people who have different ideas about baptism. I do not believe that, um, well, I believe it can be very divisive. But it's like I told my Church of Christ friend, you know, I'm willing to put you in the circle of believers. You're not willing to put me. Now, he's warming up to the idea. It is interesting. He's working very hard to try to explain this. You know, I was saved and I was baptized. And the fact that I didn't know that I really wasn't saved until I was baptized. He's trying to work it. And I'm just kind of encouraging him to keep working on it. Yes, ma'am. Some will be, okay? If, not because of their views of baptism. Her question was, these people who have the different views, will they be in heaven? And it'll be just like Christ's chapelites. Some will be. Is that a joke? I believe, I believe that... If you take that infant baptism, you were baptized as an infant. And if you believe that that saved you, it's going to be a stumbling block to you. But if at some point in your life you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are saved, then more power to you. Okay? I mean, we're all getting in the same way, which is through the blood of Jesus Christ. I do not believe that infant baptism removes the taint of original sin. I do not believe that it brings you into any covenant relationship. I believe that Jesus Christ saves. Yes, go ahead. Um, Isaiah chapter 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's all there. What verse was that? Isaiah? Isaiah 48.16. If you want to look that one up about the Trinity. It's there. It's all there. I've got all kinds of hands and I'm eight minutes late. Go ahead, Jerry. He's saved. He's saved. Right. If you're 85 years old and you've been fighting it for years and years and years, mm-hmm. you wake up one day and say, hey, mm-hmm. I worry about the deathbed, yeah. but that's between them and them. But the reality is, the, the number one data point example is the thief on the cross. He was never baptized. And Jesus assured him... He will be in heaven. And I believe, I'll go with Jesus, okay? <laughs> Somebody over here had a question. Yes? In theory, the confirmation class teaches you the church doctrine to make sure that it took. I know for a fact, though, my wife went through confirmation class and never heard the gospel. Okay. It wasn't until she came to the Baptist church and the sweet little old lady, and she was an old lady, who ran the singles class, asked her, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? That she actually understood. You're right. A good confirmation class would solidify, are you in fact a believer? But you don't want to insult people into thinking, okay, you were baptized as an infant. We don't want to pretend that didn't mean anything. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Or in your chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Was the thief on the cross, was that born under the old covenant or under the new covenant? When did the new covenant come? It's as new as can be. <laughs> yes. No. His question was, is the thief on the cross, a salvation under the old covenant or the new covenant, because the new covenant wasn't finished until Jesus was baptized. And you know what? We're 10 minutes late. I'm off the hook. I'll answer the question, yes. Okay? Just yes. I believe that the people in the Old Testament, consciously or unconsciously, look forward to Christ. And we're told that they did. I think the thief on the cross looked only. He understood nothing about the Trinity. He understood nothing about nothing. All he understood was Jesus Christ. And that was enough. We'll have a long discussion about that when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn about Christ, to learn about ourselves and our relationship with Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.